Namaste. I want to discuss social sciences in India, which is an entirely Western import, totally alienated, disconnected from our tradition. And uh, uh, to get, kick off the discussion, I have with me a friend and a scholar, Com Carpentier. Welcome to the show. Namaste. Nice to be here. Com has uh, been in India for 20 plus, plus years. He's an author, uh, runs a journal, uh, a lot of interesting things we have done together. We've traveled to uh, international conferences. I met him uh, through a friend, J.C. Kapoor, the late J.C. Kapoor, who is no more, unfortunately, uh, who has a, a, a great farmhouse in Delhi where he's hosted many important dignitaries, intellectuals, had a lot of events. He was given the Padam Bhushan by the President of India, and he was given the Star of Russia medal mm. by Putin. Mm. I recall when Putin came to India and wanted to give him this because he is considered a friend of Russia and a great intellectual. Uh, there was a controversy. The Indian government wasn't too happy that they would, uh, you know, honor him this way, uh, almost like Putin uh, honoring a random, you know, uh, uh, an ordinary Indian citizen. Uh, who's intellectually very strong but not government-related, uh, while uh, nobody in the government getting this kind of uh, publicity. So, since the Indian government wasn't too happy, Putin decided he'll hold this ceremony inside the Russian embassy. Uh, so, because that is Russian territory, the Indian government cannot decide what happens there. So, in the Russian uh, embassy was this important historic event. Uh, uh, when he was given this Star of Russia gold medal, which I think is the highest honor that... Uh, yeah, it's called the Cross of St. Andrew. Which Cross of St. Andrew. Andrew. And, I, and when, when I looked at it, it's a very heavy, solid gold. Uh, <laughs> diamonds. <laughs> and a lot of diamonds in it and, and things like that. So, uh, he was a very... Uh, J.C. Kapoor, a very charismatic man. So many international connections, uh, including with some very important uh, intellectual leaders from China, uh, uh, various uh, uh, people in Indian, uh, you know, establishment. I met through him at his farm. Every time he knew I'm coming, he would organize a little hang uh, get-together uh, and we would uh, meet some interesting people there and enjoy some wonderful food. So, with that background of Com, uh, I thought uh, since he, he also has an interest in uh, studying, uh, you know, India and its westernization and colonization, I thought a good way to kick off this discussion is to invite him and we can have a good conversation on this. Pleasure. <laughs> Uh, by the way, I also uh, worked on a PhD in sociology in the US, so I do have a connection with sociology, obviously. Since the founding father of what is considered social sciences was a Frenchman, why don't you introduce this person a little bit? Well, uh, Henri de Saint-Simon belonged to a noble French family, very old family, and he became a supporter of the French Revolution. He had fought in the American uh, War of Liberation, on the American side, obviously. As you know, the French assisted the Americans. And he became deeply influenced by American ideas of uh, republican freedom and uh, secularism. And as a result, uh, he developed a concept of society which he thought should be completely scientific. And in fact, he thought that the model for any social science should be astronomy and mathematics. And he thought that uh, social laws should be as precise as, for example, the law of gravitation. So on that basis, he built what he called industrial philosophy. 
because this was the beginning of the industrial age. And he tried to find universal principles applied to all human beings in order to build an ideal society. But he was an atheist. He was an atheist. And it was a mechanistic model of the world. Yes. So there's no spirituality, there's no divinity. It's, it's, uh, it's matter. Matter is all there is. Yes. And so matter is being organized into life. In life is being evolving into human beings. And uh, so, so somewhere uh, these human beings are ultimately matter. And that's, that's why with physics and astronomy and all that, you should be able to model the behavior of human beings. Correct. And also the concept of progress is fundamental. In other words, human beings are progressing from ignorance to uh, enlightenment typical enlightenment philosophy and religion, traditional religion is part of uh, darkness of ignorance because it relies on some invisible concepts like God, which he thought were no longer applicable. Although he tried to build a religion of his own uh, because he felt human beings needed some of it. But then it was a so-called scientific religion, which means it was an ideology. So basically, uh, he is sort of the beginning of uh, atheistic thinking about human beings and society as far as the West is concerned. Of course, India has had this thinking for a long time. But in the Western modern sense, he started this thought process. At least he organized it. You see, there were several atheistic thinkers before him. But in the beginning of the Industrial Age, which was also the beginning of systematic colonization of the world, he built this concept of a rational, empirical, uh, you know, you might say scientific society, scientific and technocratic society. So the next big milestone is in the early 1800s. And this is really the founding father of sociology. Right. So tell us. Well, Auguste Comte was actually the secretary of Saint-Simon in his youth. And he developed his philosophy partly out of Saint-Simon's ideas. Uh, but while uh, Saint-Simon was an aristocratic uh, dabbler uh, and an entrepreneur, um, uh, Auguste Comte was a theoretical scientist in so much as you could have one at that time. So we are talking about the 1830s, 40s, 50s. And Auguste Comte coined the word sociology. And he himself noticed that it was a bastard word because it had one part of it in Latin and the second half in Greek, right? Uh, but he felt that this was a supreme science because he felt that as human society and knowledge grow, people move from physical sciences to social sciences. And sociology for him was the culmination of human knowledge because it included all factors affecting human society, history, biology, economics, uh, philosophy. And he, he, of course, was a materialist. He was an empiricist. And he uh, distrusted all uh, spiritual investigations and experiences, because he felt that there was nothing you could prove there. And he wanted to go only by test and proof. So he developed sociology as a way not so much to study society, but to reform it. And he felt, like other pioneers in his day, that you could build an ideal society if only you understood uh, people scientifically. And people were to be understood uh, like almost uh, physical elements, you know. So it's like, uh, it's like uh, uh, sort of like somebody discovers a computer 
and he wants to reverse engineer and figure out which algorithms and it's how it works, what is the machinery, or somebody discovers a car or an air, somebody discovers a complex machine and wants to understand its behavior in a purely mechanistic scientific way. Correct. So he, he, his idea was a human being is sort of like a machine model and if we can understand human beings then we can understand a whole lot of them collectively and that's society and that's how social science should develop. So from the very beginning social sciences have been uh, atheistic, materialistic, deterministic, reductionist. All of these I think would apply to the founding of uh, social science. Yes, and what's very important is that like uh, Saint-Simon and like most people in his day, he believed above all in progress. And progress meant that uh, human beings had developed over the centuries from uh, a near animal stage to uh, the modern stage, which he felt was uh, then uh, progressive and which he called, in fact, positivism. So he uh, broke uh, human uh, history in through three stages of evolution. Uh, the first being theological, when people only uh, thought of gods and spirits, to uh, the second stage, which he called metaphysical, which was very um, abstract and theoretical, laws, principles, uh, to the third stage in which only what is scientifically proven is accepted which means then that you move towards something completely rational, pragmatic, and provable. In this uh, diagram, uh, you see on the left side, even religion, according to him, is classified in three stages. And Christianity is the culmination. So fetishism, when human beings are basically you know, fetished, if you will, uh, uh, you know, what you would call primitive, uh, superstitious, uh, based on all kinds of irrationality. Uh, this results in another, this leads to another stage when there is polytheism, when there is some attempt to understand nature with multiplicity of intelligences, multiple gods, and he doesn't think that that's a good kind of a religion. It's also a primitive religion. So Hinduism would be classified in that, in that place. Uh, and then it, ultimately this has to lead to an advancement towards uh, Christianity. So basically, while all religions are to be rejected and superseded by metaphysics, and then metaphysics has to lead to the science of positivism, within the religions some are more superior to others. So in a sense, if uh, Christians go and convert uh, you know, Hindus from polytheism to uh, Christianity, in his book it would be an advancement. So this is very interesting. All religions are to be rejected, but Christianity prepares for the next stage of evolution of the society, which is metaphysics, and therefore in that sense there is a hierarchy among the religions, and Christianity is higher than the rest of them. Uh, the metaphysics is an interesting one where you start speculation, you, you have a spec, but you haven't totally gotten rid of the transcendent element, element, there is still a transcendent, it may not be God per se, but there is, and it is not so scientific and it is not so empirical, because metaphysics talks about things that you cannot empirically, uh, you know, d decide and measure and, and verify. So this also has to lead to the third stage in this diagram, which is positivism, where and you use nothing but modern scientific methods. So therefore, 
while a scientific person like me says, you know, this is very good, but later in this we will show you that Hinduism and Dharma have a whole different approach where science is not being rejected, science is not being bypassed, but there is a spirituality which is consistent and compatible with science. So this is one big issue, the, the, uh, the uh, rejection of anything spiritual. The second big issue is that among the religions rejected, Hinduism is inferior, Christianity is superior. So that's an important point that will come up again. All uh, Western thinkers, especially uh, prior to, let's say, the 20th century, are products of Christian education. Therefore, they uh, pretty much remain faithful to the concept of a biblical uh, evolution, which means that you transit from uh, primitive polytheism to Judaism, which is a revelation of the only one God, and from there to Christianity. Therefore, even though they may reject Christianity because of the church and what they see as uh, a lot of uh, essentially superstition, they still say that this is a, an advance on primitive civilizations like polytheistic civilizations of Asia and Africa, which worship many gods and which have no concept of science. Remember, they had very little knowledge about the religions of Asia, but uh, they were told that obviously Christianity was by far the best. And even though they didn't uh, accept Christianity either, they still accepted some fundamental concepts in a new way. For example, the concept of providence which they could never explain, you know, because providence is supposed to be divine providence, what God wants for society or for you. And they said, well, there is providence, because if there were no providence, then how could you explain anything? I mean, why would there be evolution? There must be some progress towards some ultimate good. But they didn't want it to be on God. No, because God to them was a very uncomfortable notion, although eventually even Kant ended up trying to build his own religion, you know, because they felt something must be there. So since I don't accept Christianity, I must find something else. It seems like Darwin's social evolution happening here. Yes. Inde it, may, maybe independent of Darwin. May, or maybe, maybe this mixed up with Darwin. Prior to Darwin, anyway, yeah. This is prior to Darwin, but there is already this idea of human beings, some races, some places, some countries are more evolved than others. Yes, you see, Darwin was the ultimate empiricist because he just went by observation. But he was also a product of his day and age, which means that he was. You know, he never said that human beings descend from apes, right? He kept them out of that. That was added on later by other people. But he said, obviously, species have been evolving from the more primitive to the more developed. So he's part of that whole mindset about evolution, which, of course, now you, you obviously accept scientifically, right? We are no longer uh, believing that God just created all species one day. Uh, so we know that there is evolution. But the application of it to the social sphere is, can be problematic. While this is happening in France mainly, it's influencing Britain, and Britain is the East India Company. So John Stuart Mill, uh, one of the towering figures in the East India Company, who, who uh, was considered a liberal thinker about uh, you know society and all that from the British side, uh, he is influenced by these ideas from France. Herbert Spencer is uh, sort of the person who mentors or influences Lord Risley. Lord Risley is the one who comes up with this caste system, caste hierarchy, the census of India. So the influence of this kind of social thinking uh, permeates the East India Company through many of its great people, many of its uh, powerful people, I should say. It also influences Germans like Karl Marx, 
Max Weber, towering figures in social thought, and uh, Durkheim, another French person. So I want to explain a little bit about his influence on Karl Marx, but before Karl Marx, also Hegel, because Hegel is sort of uh, another German who has this idea of evolution uh, with civilizations, uh, some more evolved than others. And uh, Hegel, in fact, felt that uh, it was good for India to be colonized because it would advance India from uh, a, pr a primitive state to a state where it could become more civilized. Karl Marx took that further, developed his own, uh, his own theories. Yes, uh, Marx, like uh, most uh, social philosophers of his day, uh, felt that uh, the passage through westernization was inevitable and beneficial. So, benef uh, you know, westernization meant essentially breaking up the ancient Indian social structures. Uh, and religious structures, even though, interestingly, most of those people, including Karl Marx, acknowledged that India was the source, the fountainhead of uh, Western religions and languages. So they gave in the opportunity. So it's, it's sort of like, you know, this is a problem where we have people who are not good scholars, they quote something out of context and say, he loved us. Okay, a lot of Indians do that, we quote something out of context without doing the total study. So Marx, you can get some good things from Marx about India. But in uh, overall, he's appreciating India, but it's very old, it's decadent, uh, it cannot advance on its own, it needs the youth and vigor of the West. Uh, and, and, and the main point is, so West is to lead, India is to follow, therefore colonization is good. Uh, one of his important points is, that India has to evolve to a feudal society. A society has to evolve to a feudal society before it can have a, have a revolution uh, and evolve to a capitalist society. And then it has to have a revolution to throw the capitalism and evolve to a communist society. So you need feudalism to capitalism, capitalism to communism, these are the stages that have to happen. So, you know, you're not ready, you're not ready for a communist revolution until you've achieved the previous states. So therefore, we are doing you a favor by saying you are feudal and, we are, we are, and the, the colonizer is going to move you forward. Whereas Europe is in a capitalist mode and therefore it can go to the communist mode directly. So this evolution of societies always ends up locating Asian countries uh, in need of and dependent on Europe to pull them forward for their own, for their own good. Yes, and uh, all those people are essentially technocrats. Remember, communism, as defined by Marx and Engels, is very much a technocracy. It's just a technocracy in the hands of the workers, but of course, the more advanced workers, which means the engineers. And in that sense, Marx is in the line of Kant and of Saint-Simon, who were also technocrats, who, were, uh, who felt that technocracy was the leader, no more religion. And you know the, the influence of the steam engine, how much uh, they eulogized the steam engine, saying this is what will really revolutionize and transform India and bring it into civilization. So uh, Marx was very concerned that before the world could uh, move towards a communist state, Asian civilizations had to be taken over, broken up, and transformed. And as you know, he had a particular grudge against the Indian village community, because he said the village is an autonomous community. It is more important than the state, because the state changes. 
But the village remains the same along the centuries. And he said that is a source of feudalism, it is a source of primitivity, of uh, worship of animals, which he felt was very demeaning. Uh, he gave these uh, famous uh, examples, you know, worship of the cow and the monkey. People are reduced to a level of childhood, they can never grow up. So his uh, whole emphasis was on breaking all that. And he said in, the sen in that sense, the British are playing a great role why? Because they have a superior civilization, even though the East India Company is corrupt and British uh, uh, you know, colonialism has been highly exploitive, unfair, still it fulfills a purpose in history. So we are continuing to notice two trends in the evolution of European social thought. Trend number, uh, trend number one is spirituality, divinity is out. And this remains the case from the beginning of social thought till today. Uh, it, therefore, it's left-wing atheist. Second is very, very dangerous. In the evolution of societies, India is behind, Asia in general is behind, Africa is even further behind, uh, uh, you know, West is ahead. So for India's own good, it must follow the West and the West must lead and therefore we need colonization. So the principle of social scientists in India today is exactly the same. India is where the West was, right? And the West is where India should be in the future. So India's present is like the West's past. So India's present should be mapped onto all the Western past, what they had, if they had slavery, if they had feudalism, whatever they had, we should map Indian society to that. And the West's present is India's future. This this idea of social science is deeply rooted today in our textbooks, in the UPSC exam, in all the social thought that comes out of the Indian universities, uh, in the NCRT books and all kinds of things. And this goes way back in European history. And it justifies colonialism. And you can find it in the most unlikely places, for example, in attempts to reform or revive Hinduism in the 19th century and Buddhism. Look at theosophy. Uh, basically, a lot of what Madame Blavatsky said about India is that India is a repository of extraordinary knowledge. It is a source of knowledge for mankind. But India has become polytheistic and pagan and uh, fetishist. And uh, ancient Aryan gnosis, knowledge, has to be rescued and restored primarily by Westerners so that India can become truly monotheistic. Uh, while keeping its ancient knowledge. So there is a contradiction, but it is also oriented towards a reform in the Western uh, tradition. Uh, this is an important uh, reminder. A lot of Indians think that theosophy was a big deal for us, big favor to us. They were praising us. Because if you are not well informed and you're not a good scholar, you'll be able to pick and choose quotes from here and there where theosophists are saying great things about Hinduism, Vedas, and all that. But they are saying it in a certain context. Firstly, they believe that these are Aryan. Are the Aryan invasion they believe in. Secondly, they believe that these things are stagnant. These things have decayed and, and, and disintegrated into polytheism and paganism and all these kinds of things which are modern Hinduism. So they do not think much of modern Hinduism. And the, thirdly, they are digesting the good things which they are discovering in the Vedas into a kind of a Christian monotheistic model as the way forward. So theosophies 
theosophy is one of those U-turners. Theosophy is one of those digesters of uh, Hindu thought. And I think we have to be very careful when we praise the theosophists. There's this theosophy society in uh, Chennai, and a lot of local people think very highly of them. And I have read theosophy, and I would caution you to be little careful, suspicious, and balanced in your evaluation of theosophy when you say that, when you praise them for, uh, for the uh, you know, great things they had to say about uh, Hindu culture. The next big figure in Western social thought is Durkheim, and he's quoted all, the, all over. So tell us something about him. Well, Durkheim uh, was a Jewish uh, social scientist who is regarded as a real uh, systematic exponent of sociology. Uh, Kant was its founder, but Kant was also an ideologue, an ideologue who wanted to spread his own theories. Whereas Durkheim is an objective observer, and he tries to uh, eliminate as many personal opinions as possible. He tries to be purely uh, analytical and scientific. Therefore, he takes a particular viewpoint. For example, he says all religions are uh, methods that mankind has devised at various times to not only understand, but also to use uh, reality for its own benefit, for its survival. Therefore, you have to understand a religion as a structure and a function. A religion has a function. It's not, you don't have beliefs because you just have beliefs. You have beliefs because they are useful to you at a particular time in a particular context. And in that way, you can see Durkheim is a real scientist because he tries to avoid making judgments. However, he is, of course, influenced by his materialistic uh, positivist background. He doesn't really take into account the transcendent factor because to him, the supernatural cannot really exist. He doesn't really make too many judgments about it, but he says it's not the supernatural that I'm interested in, it's why socially, in, the, in terms of evolution, why was that belief adopted? So what is his view on West vis-a-vis -vis India in terms of superiority and those kind of things? And you see, he doesn't specifically say the West is superior, but he says all societies are like living organisms. They evolve. By the way, this is Herbert Spencer's too. Everything is organic, you know. So a society or an individual are in a way similar because they are organisms. And their different parts are organs. For example, religion is an organ of society. And therefore, it, it, it is born, it grows, it gets old, and it dies. So in that sense, there is a certain concept of uh, cyclicity, which is interesting. But he uh, believes that the evolution definitely goes towards greater rationalism, which goes on par with industrialization. So he clearly defines industrialization as a more advanced form of society, which requires certain things, such as adoption of a scientific perspective, a scientific worldview. So you no longer are a mystic or a, just a believer. You have to be a scientific analyst. It doesn't mean that you don't respect the believer and the mystic. They have their place. But perhaps when times change, they become irrelevant or at least outdated. So they become objects of curiosity. And I think this is the whole point about sociology, that it studies people and anthropology. They study people as if they were you know, machines. Uh, yes, or, or animals in a given ecological system. So, uh, you know, sociologists and anthropologists are famous for studying primitive tribes, so called primitive tribes, and exp 
sort of putting them under certain experiments and saying, let's see how they react. So let's move on to Max Weber, because he had a huge influence on Western thought, particularly his Protestant ethic. Well, Weber was working uh, in the beginning, late 19th century, beginning of 20th century, and uh, he spent a lot of time uh, researching Indian society and Indian religions. Uh, he also studied and researched Chinese and other civilizations. But one of his major, most famous works is about Indian Hindu uh, religion. He uh, pretty much relied on uh, Western translations of ancient Indian texts. Uh, he didn't know much about contemporary Indian religious practices. But his uh, focus was on understanding what role religions plays in economic and social organization. And his conclusion was that Hinduism is focused on an otherworldly uh, end, goal, like Buddhism. And therefore, it is cyclical and it does not allow for progress. And it is stagnant. So this whole idea gets further crystallized in the Western mind that Hinduism is otherworldly, not capable of social progress, uh, they, you know, soon thereafter they start saying human rights can't exist in Hinduism, we got to convert them because they're so, the Hindu elite are so concerned about moksha and otherworldly escape from here and they're also into this cyclical thing. So you cannot have progress if your metaphysics is cyclical. What they don't understand is that cyclical can be helix. It can go round but it can also go up at the same time. So they don't understand that cyclicality is not that you come back to the exactly the same point. Cyclicality can also be a helix. You're also moving up at the same time. Whereas uh, their idea of uh, progress is sort of a, this kind of a linear progress. Uh, he studied India, uh, uh, but not uh, accurately from an Indian perspective, it's mostly translations. Yes, and remember he, like all Westerners, uh, was also trying to understand why India was such an ancient culture had been colonized. So uh, the inevitable conclusion was that India must have been inferior in some way. And uh, in his view, what had created capitalism was a Protestant ethics. And Hinduism didn't have it, doesn't have it, and therefore was obstructing the development of capitalism. Yeah. I must, however, give, you know, give justice to uh, Max Weber, because he did come up with a number of interesting conclusions, which are basically right. For example, he said Varna is not a caste. It's a social professional uh, category. And uh, he uh, made all sorts of uh, subtle distinctions which were not necessarily uh, known at that time. But still, his general conclusion is somehow that uh, you can't build a modern capitalist society on the basis of Hinduism. You know, you have to adopt another uh, form of organization. So we're seeing the continuation of the thread from the very beginning till early 1900s in social thought that India's future depends on adopting Western models and the West guiding, leading, colonizing, managing India, so to speak. And that, of course, is what the social sciences today continue.